Oh, we can't hear it. So. Okay, well, good to see everyone tonight. Welcome to our uh, penultimate class. We have one more, one more class next week. Um, we are drawing to a close. And the, the class, is, as you know, is called How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again. The big idea, the big idea of the class, of course, is the extraordinary impact that Christianity has had upon the world. It's such that you don't notice it. It is the air that you breathe, these, these assumptions that you have about the nature of reality that you think, huh, it's always been like this. It makes sense. Turns out, hasn't always been this way. In fact, many of the assumptions we make about the nature of reality are a product of a revolution that started 2,000 years ago. And we've seen uh, the product of this revolution. We've seen it in different ways. We've looked at the whole idea of equality, that, that, that every human being is made in the image of God, has dignity, has value, and that before the law there ought to be equality, before God there's equality. And so where does this idea come from? Well, it's not self-evident. certainly didn't come from the Greco-Roman world, where there was, when a guy like Socrates would say, know thyself, he's not saying look deep inside yourself, he's saying know your position in society and stay there. We looked at the ideas of, of the family, of marriage, and of sex, and we talked about husbands love your wives, and just what a radical idea that was. But that's a product of this revolution called Christianity. We looked at the dignity of work. We found, we looked at humility. We looked at the idea of progress. We covered science, and we looked at where do we get the value of following the science. We did a whirlwind tour of the self. Where did the idea of the individual come from? Last week, we looked at death and the dead, but also hope. And so just before we dive into tonight's topic, I have a question for you. Which of these topics has, has challenged you the most or, or, or has, um, has resonated the most with you and why? The very first one, on equality and human rights? Yeah, good, good, good. You, you guys, as well online, you write down what you think. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> that's good. Equality, what else? Gerda? Yeah, personhood and individualism. I find that, like when I was putting that together, it's a fascinating story of how we get to the idea of the self. Again, it's not a self-evident story, uh, but it is, it is a product of a, of a Christian worldview. But it also, you see where it can go off the rails, too. When you remove the vertical dimension and you just talk about the self apart from God, apart from the purpose for which we are created, then it, you come up with all sorts of interesting ideas about what the meaning of life is all about and what the self is all about. Anything else? Yeah, progress is a very interesting one because when you, again, when you remove the vertical element, then what is progress? 
Like, what are you moving towards? If there, I mean, to use old language, what is the telos? What is the destiny of life? If there is no inherent good destiny, then what is progress? Progress is, like, what is it? And what happens when, when nations, in the name of progress, carry out all sorts of experiments to make a society progressive? Um, what do those societies look like? And we talked about, you know, some of the expressions within the Soviet Union, for example, or even in Nazi Germany, uh, where you look at progress without taking God into, into perspective. Well, tonight we're going to shift gears. Well, actually, it's not even much of a shift of gears. It actually relates to a little bit to what we looked at last week. Uh, tonight we're going to be exploring the revolution of community. And in particular, we are going to be leaning in on the question of health care. Oh, yes. Anybody here work in health care? Ah, yes. Okay, so I'll be calling upon you at certain points. Yeah, we're good? Okay, good. Actually, I'm not, I'm not kidding. I, I probably will. Um, let me uh, frame our time with uh, Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. It says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he'll sit on his glorious throne. This is in verse 31. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from, from, an, uh, from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on, on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty, or give you a drink? When did we see you as a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when, when did uh, we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did, to, you did it to me. Jesus, these are your words. We pray that you would speak to us tonight. It's so easy to keep this material that we're looking at at arm's length. We do pray that it would travel from our arms to our hearts. And so speak into our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so one of the themes showing up in this class, as we talked about this, is the sanctity of human beings, that beings are made in the image of God and have dignity and value. And this is set apart from the Greco-Roman view of the human being and led to the idea of uh, equality. Because Christians argued for the equality for, of all people. I mean, that was a reflection, that was um, the implication of what God re has revealed to us through his word. And when, so when I say Christians 
argue for equality, I know full well that throughout history there have been Christians who don't argue for equality, but they'd be running against what God has revealed in his word rather than living in sync with it. And by all people, we mean all people, including, as we have discovered, the unborn. The early Christians not only opposed abortion, infanticide, gender selection, and the practice of abandoning infants, they also argued that care ought to be extended to everyone, to all, including, and this is what we're going to be looking at tonight, including the sick. And we saw this um, played out in a number of plagues, and we're going to come back to plagues because plagues are fun to talk about. Um, but during, there's a number of plagues in the first three centuries. And we read about the Christians, rather than running to the hills at the first sign of trouble, they leaned in, right? Even though the pagans were heading to the, to the hills, Christians leaned in and many of them got sick and died. But they offered care for the sick and the dying. Now, why is caring for the sick so important? Well, it was rooted in the person and the teachings of Jesus. In that passage I just read to you. But we also read in the four Gospels that Jesus had compassion upon the sick. We read in the book of Matthew that Jesus goes through Galilee, throughout Galilee, healing every disease and sickness among the people. We read that Jesus healed the blind, the deaf, the lame, the mute. He touched and healed social outcasts like lepers. And he did this while also attending to the spiritual needs of a person. So what we see Jesus doing, if I can put it this way, is carrying out holistic healing ministry. He cares for a person's body, but also for their soul, right? He also cares about forgiveness as well as a person's physical healing. And so what we're going to be looking at tonight is how the church carried out a ministry of healing. Now, this has a huge impact upon our world today. I think anywhere between 80 and 90% of all the hospitals in the world were built and established by Christians. You know that? So how did it get to this place? So what I'd like you to do, just to get us going, is I want you to, around your tables, just for a few minutes, uh, discuss this question. What has your experience with hospitals been like? Have you been a patient in one? Have you visited people in the hospital or in hospice? What was that like? Do you like hospitals? So, okay, there's your answer. <laughs> well, we have a discussion, right? So let's just take a few minutes just to talk about our experience with hospitals. Yes. All right, I'm going to bring you in because I'm sure we all have stories of the hospitals. <laughs> How many of you enjoy the hospital? I see that hand. I see that hand. <laughs> How many of you enjoy the hospital? No, we are here. Yeah. <laughs> you like the food? <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> you like the food? <laughs> I'm not making a comment on that one. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's the point. We've been arguing this in this class. What seems normal, caring for the sick, and that the sick would have a place to go to be nursed and brought back to health, what seems to be normal has not always been normal 
in the history of the world, in the history of Western civilization. It certainly wasn't normal in the Greco-Roman world. The glorious Roman Empire, with its sophisticated Roman roads, public baths, gymnasiums, military might, was not all that it seemed. Now, for the healthy, it may have been okay, but even then, it's not so much okay if you are a woman, a slave, or a barbarian. But if you got sick, let's say in the first century, oh, things did not bode well for you. You see, the idea of compassion for the weak and compassion for the sick was not a well-developed virtue in the Roman Empire. In fact, mercy was often discouraged. This, listen to this one historian, the way he puts it. He says, compassion was not a well-developed virtue among pagan Romans. Mercy was discouraged, as it only helped those too weak to contribute to society. In the cramped, unsanitary warrens of the typical Roman city, under the miserable cycle of plagues and famines, the sick found no public institutions dedicated to their care, and little in the way of sympathy or help. Perhaps a family member would come to their aid, but sometimes even close relatives would leave their own to die. And so if you were sick, which in a Roman city with the sanitation the way it is, or they said the only true Democrats in the Greco-Roman world were the fleas, because they, 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 they went after everybody, apparently. Um, in the Roman cities, if you got sick, there weren't any hospitals for healing or nursing care. Now, there are some people who say, hang on, David, hang on. Are you sure there were no hospitals, there was no healing places in the uh, Greco-Roman world? Some people push back. They say, no, hang on. The have a whole tradition of philanthropy. Now, what does philanthropy mean? It literally means love of humanity. But the reality is, not all of humanity was loved. <laughs> As per usual, um, Roman society was usually connected to the building up of honor and the lowering of shame. So Roman philanthropy was essentially self-serving. Uh, if anything was given to the poor, and do you know what the old word in the first century was for giving to the poor? Dole. Dole. That's where we get the, the, the word dole today. Um, it was to elevate one's standing and to approve um, and to gain higher approval rating among the public and to help people forget some of the problems of society. And so money would be given to maybe building projects, for sure, shopping malls, theaters, other forms of distraction <laughs> were doled out. And we've talked about this before, but poverty and the challenges of life, how were they perceived in the Greco-Roman world? It was perceived as, hey, this is, this is your fate. You are subject to the fickle fate of, of the gods. And these gods, as we have discovered, these Roman gods, they were not exemplars of virtue, right? And they typically didn't give a rip too much about human beings. Roman culture as a whole did not encourage a need or responsibility to care for its people, especially the destitute, the sick, and the lame, and the dying. 
And but here's the problem is that in the um, first and second century you have a lot of people flocking from the countryside and moving to cities. But they would come to cities um, often alone and they wouldn't have the support of the village, they wouldn't have support of their family. And the moment they got sick, they were in a lot of trouble. There were physicians, but they're very expensive. And if you got sick and you were on your own, you would die. But if you died, there wouldn't even you, there wouldn't even be a guarantee that your body would be buried. Now you think about this. Think of like regardless of who. Let's say you're all alone. You have no family in 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 in, in the world left. You're the only person. You know, in Canada, we know that if we died, if any one of us died, our bodies would be taken care of. It's just, it's just an assume uh, an assumption that it'd be taken care of somehow. In the Greco-Roman world, if you died, there was a good chance your body would just be left for wild animals to, to feed on. Sometimes poor families would just abandon sickly family members because they could not afford to hire a physician. Um, we know in Rome, the sick or the elderly slaves were regularly left to waste away on Tiber Island. Children were abandoned on the street and the, face of the, uh, the fate that they would face. If you were to walk the streets in the major cities in the empire, uh, you would see the chronically ill everywhere on the streets. Many people were homeless, left begging. Now some of you might be thinking, well, there must have been something by way of health care in the, in, the, in the olden days, in the, in, the, in the Roman world. I mean, what about the... Uh, that oath, hey? Isn't that like a Greek, Greco kind of thing? What's that oath called? The Hippocratic Oath, right? From Hippocrates. I mean, the, the call to do no harm and, to, and, to, and, to, and to, um, to extend care to all. Well, by the time you get to the, the, to the Roman Empire, that doesn't seem to be a, a, um, a policy that was very well-received, and there is a debate as to whether or not it was ever well-received. Um, so what was medicine then like in the Greco-Roman world? Well, if it, where it did exist, it didn't reach the ordinary person, the sick and the dying in the cities. Um, I came across this this past week. There's a fellow named Dionysus. He's a third-century bishop. And uh, he describes the treatment of those suffering from a plague in 250 AD. I think I have it in your notes. It's really interesting. It says, And they, the early Christians, took the bodies of the saints on their upturned hands and their bosoms and closed their eyes and shut their mouths. And carrying them in company, laying them out decently, they clung to them, embraced them, and prepared them duly for washing and with attire. So the bodies, this is what we talked about last week, these bodies were taken care of. And then in a little while, after they had the same services done for themselves, as those who survived were ever following those who departed before them. But among the heathen, listen to this, among the heathen, heathen all was the very reverse. 
For they thrust aside any who began to be sick, and kept aloof even from their dearest friends, and cast their sufferers upon the public roads half dead, and left them unburied, right, this is what we're saying, and treated them with utter contempt when they died, steadily avoiding any kind of communication and intercourse with death, which, however, it was not easy for them altogether to escape, in spite of the many precautions they employed, because there are so many dead bodies all over the place. So this is written, this is a description of, of the plague that took place in 250 AD, where we read in some of these cities about 5,000 people a day were dying. And the Romans uh, saw helping someone who was sick as, as a sign of weakness. Christians saw it as serving God. And we got to see that. And so we find Christians filling in the void left by pagans. And I've shared this before, where Christians, rather than running to the hills, they leaned in because they were taught to love their neighbor as, as, as themselves. And we know that many Christians ended up dying as they extended care to the sick during these plagues. Most of them are nameless, but we know one name. Let me introduce you to this person. Benignus of Dijon. He lived in the second century, in the 100s. And he died. Why? Because we read, he nursed, supported, and protected a number of deformed and crippled children that had been saved from death after failed abortions and exposures. Of course, this ran against the Greco-Roman way of seeing the sick and the deformed. What does Seneca, the great Roman philosopher that everybody says we should read today, I see it in the chapters, read, and you learn from Seneca. Well, what does Seneca teach us? We drown children who at birth are weakly and abnormal. Now, were there hospitals in the ancient world? Well, not really. There were no places for extended care or nursing for the general population. Now, some historians would say, no, hang on, David, there are, there were hospitals. Um, but they would be wrong. <laughs> I mean, you have, uh, you have places of healing, like you have the temple of Asclepius. He is the, the god of healing, right? But what did that look like? Well, at most, you would have shelter for the night. And then the story goes is that if you, if you are sick and you have shelter, um, as Asclepius in the temple, what, 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 do you know what you would find lots of? Moving around? There's a picture of the snake. Remember the, um, yeah. So there'd be, there'd be snakes. And apparently the story goes is that if a snake slithered over you when you're resting and lying there, then you are likely to be healed by the god. What's that? No, no, just, they just kind of roll over you, yeah, just slither over you. And, and I don't know, part of me thinks there's got to be a better way. <laughs> or, or I guess a better way would be no snake slithering over you, but you have a vision of Asclepius. If you have a vision, then maybe you experience healing. But the point is this, there's no nursing care that's going on here. At most, you have shelter for the night. <laughs> At worst, a very uncomfortable shelter. Um, but this is, not, this is not a hospital by any definition. There's no long-term nursing care. There were physicians in the Greco-Roman world, but few could afford them. 
given, and it was also a little bit awkward because sometimes the treatment was worse than the sicknesses. Um, physicians prescribed medicine, but again, they didn't offer long-term care. There's no nursing care to the sick. There were places that would look after and would try to bring healing and restoration to soldiers and gladiators. But it wasn't like they were there to be restored to health, to just kind of, re no, they were, gladiators were restored to health for what? <laughs> to go back in and, and, you know, probably to die. It was all about returning the injured to economic and military usefulness. So this is, again, not really a hospital by definition. And by the time you get to the end of the first century, a new way of thinking, a revolution, as it were, was being introduced to the Roman world. See, the Christians, when they talked about philanthropy, they knew what it meant to love humanity. It was rooted in their understanding of the Imago Dei, and care began to be extended to all people, not just to those who could afford a physician. So Christians practiced charity, and the word charity comes from the word charis, love, right? It wasn't about honor and shame, it was about imitating Christ. People looked at um, Christians, they looked at the sick, they looked at the lame, and they didn't say, oh, this is a product of fate. No, you are a brother or sister who needs help. And the weaker and more helpless the neighbor, the greater the sense of need to receive the compassion of Christ in their lives. Again, this extended to the unborn, to the newborn, but also to the sick and the infirmed. So back to our favorite plague. What's our favorite plague? The plague, plague of 251, 250, 251. There's this huge, and so the plague of 251 extended to most of North Africa. And the story goes, there's piles of dead rotting in the streets. And we talked about the role that Christians played. We talked about this last week in burying dead bodies. Pagans blamed the Christians for the problems and an empire-wide persecution broke out. Now, this is a, this is a persecution led by a fellow named, uh, emperor named Decius. Now, Decius, in order to persecute the Christians, he was the guy who came up with the idea of, uh, what was that little code that we had to have during COVID in order to go to restaurants? QR, uh, I forget what they're called. They're just, yeah, QR codes. Now, Decius is the OG QR code fellow um, because he said in order to participate in society, you had to um, prove, you had to have a certificate to show that you had worshipped the Roman gods. And I've seen, I've seen, um, ancient um, examples, scripts of, of, of what these uh, certificates look like. And you'd say, you know, I certify that Ryan the lion, who's known for his goatee, that's actually, you would say that, you, you have some physical identification that because of Ryan's goatee, he wears glasses, uh, that I certify that I saw him worship the Roman gods and so give him permission to go in and go shopping whatever he wants. If you didn't have that, you can participate in society. And so Decius carries out a pretty intense persecution. And in response, this is amazing. I'm like, these stories are so interesting to read. 
you read about a guy, a bishop named Cyprian, and Cyprian urging Christians, and I've read, read Cyprian's writings, and Cyprian would say, guys, you got to help people who are sick. It doesn't matter if they're pagan. If they're pagan or Christian, this is what we got to do. And he's a bishop, and he's ordering instructions to the church to care for the poor, and at the same time, the Roman Empire is trying to arrest Cyprian to kill him. And he's, saying, he's on the run, but he's writing these letters saying, go and keep caring for the pagans, and they're sick. So, again, our man Dionysus, he, he, he describes this. He says, quote, Certainly very many of our brethren, while in their exceeding love and brotherly kindness, they did not spare themselves, but kept by each other, and, and visited the sick without thought of their own peril, and ministered to them assiduously, and treated them for their healing in Christ, died from time to time most joyfully among, uh, along with them, lading themselves with pains and derived from others, drawing upon themselves their neighbors' diseases, saying that a lot of these Christians are getting sick themselves, and willingly taking over to their own persons the burdens of the sufferings of those around them. And many who had thus cured others of their sicknesses and restored them to strength died themselves having transferred to their own bodies the death that laid upon, them, upon these. Right? This is amazing stories. Eusebius, he's uh, the first church historian. He reports on a plague during the reign of the emperor uh, uh, Maximinius in uh, 303 to 313, just before Constantine. He writes, A great rural population was almost entirely wiped out, nearly all being speedily destroyed by famine and pestilence, some chewing wisps of hay and recklessly eating noxious, uh, noxious uh, herbs, undermined and ruined their constitution. So these people are eating hay and eating weeds and they're, they're wrecking their stomachs. And some of the high-born women of the city, driven by want to shameful extremities, went forth into the marketplace to beg. And in response to this, we read that the universal zeal and piety of the Christians have become manifest to all the heathen. For they alone in the midst of such ills showed sympathy and humanity by their deeds. Wow. Now, after Constantine sort of kind of came to faith... <laughs> It's a big debate about that. In the early 300s, he's a Roman emperor. Lo and behold, the Roman emperor becomes a Christian-ish, kind of. Uh, but anyhow, he makes Christianity a legalized religion. One of the first tasks that the church took on, now that they're no longer being persecuted, was to extend care and healing to the sick. And so let's talk about the first Christian's hospitals. This is super interesting stuff. Um, there's this council that takes place in a place called Nicaea. You've heard of Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. Wait till I teach church history. I'll teach a whole class on church history. That'll be fun. Um, but one of the things, one of the things that people don't realize that what came out of the Council of Nicaea, yes, they were agreed about who Jesus is and that Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. But the other thing that came out of it was every bishop was to go back to their home and set up places of healing for the sick. That's what they were told to do. 
They're to set up places where the sick could be nursed and find healing. There are places that provided shelter for the poor and for traveling pilgrims. And again, all this, underlying all this teaching is, is, is Jesus' teaching. Um, in Matthew 25, for example, or uh, uh, welcoming the stranger in, in 1 Peter and 1 Timothy. Um, and then we read the first hospital was built by a guy named Basil the Great. Do not call him Basil. He gets mad. <laughs> Basil. <laughs> Think of faulty towers, not the herb. Um, Basil the Great in Caesarea uh, in, in, in modern-day Turkey. So the first hospital was built roughly 369 AD. And it was a building, one of those buildings, with houses for physicians and nurses, workshops, and industrial schools. So why did Basil build these? Well, Basil, who, by the way, is a brilliant theologian, wrote a lot on the Trinity and pastoral life. He's a really interesting guy to read. I've, I've read Basil. Um, but he saw all the arts are a gift from God, including the art of healing and caring for the sick. And so many scholars believe that this, this place that he builds was a distinct place um, with the role to care for the sick. In, in fact, people, while they were getting better, uh, could even learn a trade so that they could get work after they experienced healing. It's kind of cool. Basil's got a brother, and his brother's name's Gregory, Gregory of Nyssa. And Gregory talked about his mom. The mom's a, she is like a very, very strong, strong Christian, brilliant mind. Her name is Macrina the Elder. Um, and she begged that a physician help her in her sickness, saying, hey, God gave us the art of medicine for the purpose of preservation, so we should take medicine. Basil's got a buddy named Gregory of Nazianzus, and he gives a eulogy when Basil died, and this is what uh, Gregory says. He says, quote, go a little way outside the city to see, the, see a new city, the treasury of piety, a common treasure room of those who have possessions with superfluous wealth is stored. In this institution, diseases are studied, misfortune made blessed, and the sympathy, and sympathy put to the test. And so it's, I mean, we can go on and on and on about um, many of the church fathers arguing for the use of medicine. Now, this week I came across two guys I'd never heard of before. And, but I'll tell you, they, they just seem very interesting. And some of you have already looked at the picture <laughs> that I have in your notes. And their names are Cosmos and Damien. They were third century healers. And they were famous for not taking payment for their services. And they were also famous for performing the first transplant, apparently, where they amputated the leg of a Caucasian man and replaced it with the leg of a dead African patient. Well, there's a big question. <laughs> did it? That's exactly what I thought. It's like, uh, did that work? <laughs> I don't know. But hey, they, they sure tried. Um, now, these guys, they were both um, arrested, crucified, tortured, and killed by the, uh, the Emperor Diocletian. But it's interesting. I, I didn't know about these guys. Now, after this hospital is built in the east, there's a wealthy woman 
a very uh, prominent woman. Her name is um, uh, Fabiola, and she was friends of a fellow named Jerome. And she donated money to build a hospital in the West. And it was built in Rome in around 390 AD. And she went out on the streets and she looked for the sick, she looked for the poor, and brought them into the hospital to, to experience healing. And these buildings were, were called initially um, Xenodokia. Xenos, you think of xenophobia. Xenos is the word stranger. And um, Dekastai, which means to receive, to receive the stranger. And this construction, hospital construction continues. There's another fella. Um, I'll tell you, every pastor wants his nickname. His name is John Christostom. He's the greatest preacher of the fourth century. And do you know what his nickname was? Does anybody know? His name was uh, is Golden Mouse. Now, Every pastor wants that nickname. <laughs> okay, I noticed you guys online, you're starting to talk about maid. Do not start talking about maid yet. We're still, in, we're still in the fourth century. All right, we haven't got there yet. All right, don't be jumping ahead. Okay, stay with the tour. <laughs> yeah, sure. Two questions, okay. Okay, yeah, so the two questions, the first question is about witches and, and how they were perceived and, and what, they, what they did and whether or not they practiced any arts of healing or anything like that. That's more the Middle Ages, so that's a much, much later on. Um, the, related to that is the idea of herbs. Well, there is a, a, a pretty deep study on, on the use of herbs for healing. And, and you see this not just among Christians. I mean, you see this in, in the Greco. There, there, are, there are physicians. I mean, one of the most famous physicians in, in, uh, in the Greek world is Galen. And Galen, uh, his, his, um, he's the first um, person who's kind of mapped out anatomy. Uh, he's a father of human anatomy. Um, and, and so he, he has a, a huge influence on the development of, of medicine, even among Christians. But I do know that there's also a lot of um, use of herbs, and some of these herbs were quite medicinal and quite helpful, and some were quite poisonous and would kill you. Um, some were used intentionally to kill you. Some were used intentionally to induce abortions. Um, and so there's, I don't know, how, I don't know enough to know whether or not they were, it was a sophisticated use of herbs, but I know that it was a widespread use of herbs. Some were effective and some, of course, were not. Yeah. Good question. Um, hotel construction continues um, right up into, uh, and I'm not going to give you the whole history of it. I'm going to stop probably around the 5th century. But by the time you get to the 5th century, that's the 400s, there's a cascade of hospitals being established. And behind them were the monks, the Benedictines. Uh, the Benedictines alone were responsible for more than 2,000 hospitals in Western Europe. And by the time you get to the 6th century, hospitals were regular parts of monasteries and were being, that were being built at the time. So that would be part of a monastery. There'd be a, places of, of, of healing, even within a monastery. And so Christianity birthed um, 
this incredible movement. And so we need to see this. Because of the Christian Revolution, hospitals came into existence. And I, I would push back, I, I, and there is a lot of debate about this. People say, oh, no, there were hospitals other places. But I don't think there were hospitals, per se. There may have been shelters. They may have been, there may have been physicians there. Um, but they weren't places of nursing and healing. And hospitals, interesting, was, were, were the um, world's first voluntary charitable institutions. They were built through donations. And so we still live in that. Well, I mean, we have government um, money. But, you know, you, you look at RCH and, 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 and uh, VGH, they're often having funding drives, right? This carries on. Um, can I, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just dip my toe into the Middle Ages for a second. Is that okay? Because there's just a couple geeky things that are kind of fun. One is um, there were some developments in terms of um, hospital care during the Middle Ages. Now, one or a couple movements come out of the Crusades. Now, the Crusades were, especially the first crusade, was very, very dark. What these crusaders did horrible things when they got to, got to Jerusalem, um, or even before that. But in the midst of all this, there's a couple orders that are formed, and they're interesting orders. They're, they're, they're kind of monastic slash military orders, but some of them actually had a real emphasis on caring for the sick. And you think about it, and then there's a lot of violence, a lot of people injured, and so you have these orders that are formed to actually take care of the sick. One of the groups is called the Order of the, um, the Hospitallers, <laughs> and that was established, uh, and they recruited women to help nurse the sick. Uh, there's another group called the Hospitallers of St. Lazarus, was uh, established in the 12th century. Again, focusing on nursing the sick. And if you've ever, has anybody ever taken the St. John's Ambulance course? First aid course? Do you know where that starts? You're in the Crusades. That's where it dates right back to the Crusades. Um, the Knights of the Order of the Hospitallers of St. John of uh, Jerusalem operated hospitals. Um, the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem in London was founded in 1247. So this is something that was founded in 1247, and it specialized. It was a hospital that specialized in what? Mental illness. And so it was the Priory of St. Mary of Bethlehem in London. It was reduced to just being called Bethlehem, and then it was reduced to being called Bedlam. Have you ever heard? It's, it's, it's like it's, it was absolute bedlam. That comes from the word, it's a shortening of the word Bethlehem, which goes back to this particular mental institution of the 13th century and is now signifies chaos in the English language. It's absolute bedlam. But it actually, Bedlam comes from the word Bethlehem that goes back to the 13th century. Anyhow, that's one of those geeky things that I think is kind of fun. Um, in the, in the Middle Ages, if you were a long-term patient, 
Uh, you would have to wear particular clothes, so hospital gowns kind of came into, into, uh, into play um, in the Middle Ages. You would wear uh, clothes that were actually were, uh, either black, white, dark brown, blue, or gray. Um, and, and it would be a way that people would know that you belong to a hospital, that you shouldn't be really wandering around. Um, if you need to get first aid, the universal symbol of this is a white cross on a green background. I remember in Armenia, you would see these everywhere, uh, everywhere you go. Um, if a town was in crisis, who would come to help? The Red Cross. Now, again, I just want to point this out. This is the air we breathe. You know, we talk about the Red Cross. We all know about the Red Cross. We all know about hospitals. If any one of us got sick tonight, we could call 911. An ambulance would be here, hopefully within six or seven minutes, and you would be taken to the nearest hospital where you could trust that you would get treated. Now, you may have to wait six hours, but you would get treated. These are things that we take for granted. This is the air that we breathe. But it is a result, I would argue, of a Christian revolution that took place 2,000 years ago. And this is something we need to remember all along the way. Now, one of the things I want to deal with is, um, is, is a theme that we have in our class. And um, just before I get to that theme, I just want to point out that in your notes, I hope you notice, I give you kind of an outline history of healthcare and hospitals. You see that? That's from Christian History Journal. It's, it's actually quite helpful. I asked Janice to, to make a copy of it, to put it into your notes. But that, that kind of tells you the story a little bit. It goes right up uh, into the 16th century, at least. Okay, so <clears throat> one of the themes of the class is this, that yes, that Christianity brought about a revolution 2,000 years ago, and it changed how we see reality. And many of the assumptions that we make about reality are not natural, but are actually a product of Christianity, right? That's the theme. But there's another theme, and we've touched on it all along, and that is what happens to a society when you move away from that vertical connection, or you remove the vertical connection, what happens to society when you knock out the foundation for it? And we've touched on this a little bit. And in many ways, what happens, and it's not a one-to-one -one exact same thing, but when you knock out the foundation when you remove Jesus from the equation, then what you have is you have a shadow of Christianity, which may last for a little while, but then a shadow casts no shadow. And then you start living in the, in a place where there, there is no foundation. And I would say in those situations, you start to see society in some ways looking like the Roman Empire again. Not exactly, but a little bit like it. There's some characteristics that we, that we start to revert back to things. And so I'm going to make, I'm going to just talk a little bit about healthcare today. Now, I'll say this right from the get go. I'm not, I am a doctor, but of church history. Um, I cannot, so, um, this, 
you know, I don't have a deep, deep background in, in the area of healthcare, but I do study history and I study ideas. And I think there are a few things that we could talk about, about what is happening in the area of faith and medicine today. So that's where I want to lean in a little bit. And um, one of the things that's happening in the area of healthcare that I'm seeing is an overemphasis on technology and science. So this gets back to what Mike was saying, and the fragmentation of the body. So you're probably like, what are you talking about, David? Well, that's okay, I'll tell you right now. Uh, this is what I'm seeing. I think with modern medicine, what you're finding is an increased fragmentation of the body. So what, what that means is that you, you, you're finding hospitals that are more and more specialized and becoming places of advanced technological innovations and procedures to fix problems rather than nursing and caring for the person as a whole. See, the original idea of, of hospitals is, 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 was more holistic. It wasn't just about curing of the body, it was curing of the soul, and, and, um, and our, our, our body and spirit were all things that were taken into consideration. Also, what it means to be human was taken into consideration. What it means to be a healthy person, what it means to be an older person, what it means to be a person who's getting close to death, what it means to be a person who's just been born, those sorts of questions. And so you have questions about what it means to be human, but what you're seeing happening, and I think this is part of living in a technological world, is that you're seeing hospitals increasingly dependent upon technology to fix particular issues of the body without looking at the body as a whole. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing because if I have something wrong with my pancreas or if I have a heart issue, I don't want just a generalist to say, well, how are things going overall? You know, I want them to know something about the heart, absolutely. Um, and how to fix that, yes. But what we see happening in, 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 in hospitals now is just this emphasis on um, on using whatever technolo technology is available to fix whatever the problem is. And sometimes what you see is the use of technology to prolong life beyond life's natural length. Because we can, we can through the right technology keep a person alive for a long, long time. But the question that's not asked is, should that happen, right? Should a person just be on life support forever? And so what, what I think is lacking is, is a Christian understanding of the, of the body. And, a, and I'm going to come back to this, a Christian understanding of suffering. Recognizing that we will all die at one point. And so the other thing that you see happening is connected to that is, is that faith and, and, and let's say a Christian understanding of what it means to be a human being is no longer part of the conversation in a hospital. Now, you can go to a hospital and on the first floor, what do you find? You find like a chapel, right? And, uh, it's a place of 
spiritual stuff, right? Um, but it's usually not staffed. And it usually, yeah, there, there's, there's no, if there is a staff, if there is a chaplain, it's an interesting origin of the word chaplain, but I won't get into that. Um, there's a, there is a chaplain, but the chaplain is usually an interfaith chaplain and works in a multiple hospitals. So it's not something that, you know, they would keep necessarily on hand. Maybe in some hospitals, but uh, I haven't seen that, at least uh, in, in, in BC. But if you have questions of faith, usually faith um, comes in at the point of um, after a person dies, <laughs> or if a person is about to die. Uh, you know, they're, they're dying, they're scared, can you bring in the priest or the pastor to, you know, bring a little bit of comfort before they die? But all the medical stuff and all the questions of medicine are being handled by medical practitioners, primarily. And so medical teams are structured to act for the good of, like, temporal salvation, salvation from sickness, basically. And medicine cares for to fix the now, the... And, and the questions of transcendence, the questions of faith, the questions of what is the meaning of life and what, what does the quality of life look like, those sorts of questions are usually, they, they, they're heard, but they're, they're secondary. And so I see some changes in, the, in, 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 in how we look at, at medicine and how we look at, um, at the human being. I see some disturbing developments, and, and one of them is, is this fragmentation of the body that we're simply reduced to our organs that need to be fixed, and what, we, what it means to be a human being alive, those questions are often, again, if they are dealt with, they're secondary questions. And now we'll talk about made okay so now you guys you can get your fingers ready to type okay because <laughs> we have to talk about made uh, medical assistance in dying um i was gonna have you guys talk among your tables but it could get quite heated so um this is a big topic this is a huge topic and a lot of people have very very strong opinions about euthanasia and uh, right across within among Christians and and, and right across the board um, I want to just lay out a couple ideas and a couple concerns I have about medical assistance in dying okay so and then we'll have some time for Q&A you with me yeah, I'm treading very carefully here okay here we go you guys ready online yeah okay here we go well, back in 2016, around 2016, Canada first passed this euthanasia legislation, right? And at first it was provided, if you remember that far back, it was provided for those who were experiencing chronic illness and great suffering, and the understanding is that death was imminent, was inevitable and imminent. Now, since that first piece of legislation, the problem is, is a lot of Canadians, when they think about euthanasia, they still think of that. They think that that is the legislation that's in effect, but it's not. It has changed quite a bit over the years. 
Since that first piece of legislation, the practice of what is called death care has taken off in Canada. And many people have pointed out that Canada is becoming a prime death tourist destination. That's a place where you go if you want to die. This past year, medical assistance in dying deaths, that's what it's called, increased by 34% from last year. Over 10,000 Canadians took this option um, last year. California, which has a similar population as Canada, um, also has um, euthanasia legislation. Do you know how many people died? 600. So it's certainly um, taken off in Canada. You have to ask the question, why? Now, we do know that by 2024, the Canadian government has plans to expand this health care to those struggling with addictions along with mental health problems. And Health Canada, if you look at their, their um, material, they, they describe MAID, now, okay, they describe MAID as, quote, a very elegant, graceful death. There's a woman named Rosina, and she died in her home on September 25th, 2021, by MAID. Now, ostensibly, she chose this option because of chronic physical pain, but she um, actually produced a, a YouTube video explaining the real reason why she wanted MAID, and it was because she was struggling with loneliness. Another person recently in Chilliwack qualified for MAID because of hearing loss. Now, the proponents, proponents of, of MAID are looking to widen the scope for those to receive it and make the scope wider and wider. And, 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 and there's a logic to, to what they're saying. They're saying, look, follow me here. Every Canadian has a right to health care. It's in the Constitution, right? Part of health care is to have the freedom to have someone kill you. To choose made. That, that's, that's, that's part of it. And, bec and, and if, if you deny someone the freedom for any reason, I mean, that's where it's moving, then you're actually denying them health care. Now, I've said this to you before. Now, and I'm not the first one to say this, but George Orwell talked a lot about this. Be careful with language. Because if you can use language and you can twist the meaning of language, you can make people think whatever you want. So now, now you're in a unique situation that if you are feeling suicidal, there's a 1-800 number to call. It's a suicide hotline. But be very careful because there's another 1-800 number. And that is where you would request for MAID. Both are offered in the name of health care. So what is going on here? 
I think a bigger question is why are so many Canadians going down this road? And I'm not sure if I have an answer. Yeah. Yes, okay, I'm just going to get to that point. That's a great point, Betty. Uh, so it's this idea of dying with dignity. Okay, good. I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that is where we're, we're going to look at next. People are feeling... Exactly. So yeah, so you work in that field. So people feel that they are taking this option because they don't want to be a burden to their family, a financial burden in some ways, um, or even a caring burden. Um, and so these are reasons why people would, would, would choose this option. And also the desire to die with dignity. And I have read that, that of the um, people who choose medical assistance in dying, the reason, the, the overwhelming reason, the majority reason is not chronic suffering, but it, 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 it's, it's autonomy. Yeah, it's, it's usually autonomy, which goes back to our two-week-ago class on the self. But, but let's, let's look at this. I think part of the challenge is how we see suffering and death in our world. And a lot of people want to be saved from the disgust of physical suffering. And so a beautiful death has come to mean a death free of suffering. And, and, and bodily, describe bodily, like losing bowel control and all the things that go with, with a decaying body. And so the thinking looks something like this. We allow our bodies to be in their full healthy state until things begin to go awry. But rather than facing any form of uh, suffering, we nip things in the bud and we die when we're relatively healthy. And so rarely, rarely do you find anyone <laughs> talking about what's on the other side of a beautiful death. There's often this death with dignity and I'm going to die, I'm going to go out before my body gets too rough. I... Yeah, I've done funerals for people who have died through MAID. And a lot of it was I wanted to die now before things got really, really rough. I didn't want to die without dignity. Yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, so a lot of people don't want their family to know about it. Yeah. Interesting, yeah. But, but that's an interesting idea because it is this idea that when I get sick and when my body is, 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 is getting sick and decaying, that it's somehow, a, it's somehow something that is shameful that ought to be removed from sight and, and people not to know about it. I mean, I'm just thinking aloud, but that's, that's a really interesting point. Yeah. Right. And so, and that's, and that's where uh, MAID is moving towards. It's moving towards um, allowing for advanced directives. So if I get dementia or if I get really, really sick and I am no longer in a clear state of mind to sign off on this, 
here's my signature now. So when that starts to happen, you can kick in. Well, I'll, I'll leave that for you to think about, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think so either. <laughs> okay, but let, let, let's think about this a bit more. Um, so rarely do you talk about people, rarely do you hear people talking about what lies on the other side of this beautiful death, which is namely a dead body. And we discussed last week, you, people are more and more skittish when it comes to the aftermath of death. Grief, mourning, dead bodies, urns, burial. If we can just remember the perfect body before he or she receives made, then that is ideal. And you know what that's sometimes called? It's called the Princess Diana effect. Because everybody remembers Princess Diana as a live and vibrant person. And then she died. And so euthanasia, euthanasia offers a beautiful and sanitary death. But here's the question. To avoid or eradicate disgust and suffering, what are we saying about what it means to be human? What are we saying... Like if we're saying that you have to, that you know to to suffer or to experience decay in your bodies is something that's unsightly and should not be experienced, then what are we saying to people who have mental disabilities or have very strong physical disabilities? What do we say to them? We say that they're, they're maybe less than human. And so are we trying, and this is a question to ask, are we trying to remove, and with medical assistance and dying, are we trying to remove death from life? Like part of being human is that we will all die. That's just part of being human, that all of us will die. But if we separate death from being human, then death becomes this grotesque thing on, on its own, where in reality, this is just part of what it means to be a human being. Christians have long argued that death exists within life itself. As we age, <laughs> as I'm discovering, we experience death in and all around us. But Christians have also argued that it is human to suffer. This is part of what it means to be a human being. In our sufferings, we would argue as Christians that we experience community, friendship, support, and love. And in our sufferings, we can experience the very presence of our Lord Jesus Christ himself who suffered. And we can celebrate the fact that what lies ahead is a resurrected body. See, the Greco-Roman world never saw, never saw suffering. They saw suffering as something inherently evil. And in Christians, it's not like they saw suffering as, as beautiful and that we should look for suffering, but they saw that God can redeem suffering and make it into something powerful. So in many ways, our view of suffering and death, our view of what it means to be alive, 
I think in our world today, we're looking increasingly Roman. Because we're living in a world where that is a healthy person's world. In Canada, so long as you're healthy, you're okay. But what happens? Remember, same in the Roman Empire. What happens when you get sick? Well, your family wants nothing to do with you. Your family wants you out of sight, out of mind. You're costing us lots of money. So do the thing that's going to help everybody out. The revolution that Christianity brought about dives deeply into the meaning of life. And it says to be human means, you know what, every one of us, we're going to get old. And when we get old, our bodies are going to get loose. We're going to lose some control over some functions. And this is, this is, this is what it means to be human. And this is where we say to one another, I need your help. I need your help. Come, come along, be my friend. I'm, and, and I'll be your friend to the very end. And we're a community that supports one another, that experiences the presence of Jesus in the midst of our suffering. We don't hide away. We don't cloister away. We don't, we don't, we don't separate death from part of what it means to be a human being. And so what I see happening with medical assistance and dying in particular, I see some really disturbing things happening. It's a culture of death that's being embraced. And it's taking off. And a lot of people around the world are looking at Canada as a red flag. <laughs> what is happening there? I had a friend of mine, and she used to come to my Tuesday night classes, and she uh, once told me, she, and this is a long time ago, this is like 15, 20 years ago, she said to me, uh, she was going to go home, and she was from Sweden. And she says, oh, I don't want to go back. I said, why? She goes, wow, I don't want to get sick while I'm over there. I said, why? She goes, well, if I get sick and I go to a hospital, I won't come out. I won't come out. They'll, they'll, they'll put me down. And because there was a culture of death. And all along, in, in every country that introduces euthanasia legislation, it always begins with, this is for someone who's very, very sick, it's, it's irreversible, it's imminent, and they're experiencing so much suffering, and people are like, well, you know, we, we want to care for people who are suffering. And then it changes and changes and changes and changes, and now in some places in Scandinavia, it's available for children in Canada. And it won't be long before, again, in the Roman world, what did they do with their infants? Because I've heard guys like, um, what's his name, uh, Singer, he's an ethicist in the States, saying, why stop when a baby is born? Why is it when a baby is born, they suddenly have dignity and value? If we can abort beforehand, why can't we practice infanticide? It makes no sense. And without the Imago Dei, he's right. But because we're made in the image of God, we say no. And so these, we're, we're, in, we're in interesting and dangerous times. And this is why we need to think clearly on these things. Otherwise, we're in a lot of trouble. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. 
and uh, we'll, and then we could do some some questions afterwards. But I'm going to probably just uh, finish the recording at this point. So let me uh, pray, and we'll finish off. And then next week, what we're going to do is I'm going to lay out. Um, uh, I'm going to do a David Letterman top ten, top ten things that we as Christians need to recover in order to save civilization. Okay, so this is kind of that's what we're going to be looking at next week. But let. Well, let me pray, and then I'll, then I'll turn off the recording, and then you can ask me whatever controversial question you'd like. <laughs> Lord, thank you for your grace, and thank you for your truth, and help us to be men and women of courage, to think clearly, to see clearly, and to speak on the behalf of those who have no voice, for the vulnerable, the sick, the dying, recognizing that every person from conception to death is made in your image and has dignity and value and help us to to represent you in the midst of all this and to speak and to shout from the rooftops the value that every human being has and lord we also recognize that on the cross you suffered and help us to recognize in our own sufferings, these are not necessarily things that uh, we, can do, we just run away from, but we can experience you in the midst of it, and you can redeem even the, the toughest situations. Help us to be a community that doesn't leave people all by themselves to suffer, but that we would come around and we be a community of, of love and faith and friendship. That's our desire, Lord. We lay these things before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.